All episodes of the Garage Build podcast are recorded live in the Law Fran studios. The law offices of Fran Hosh, Palm Harbor, Florida. Call 1-866-LAW-FRAN or go to lawfran.com. The law offices of Fran Hosh, serving the Tampa Bay biker community for over 20 years. Welcome back to the Garage Build Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Jason Hallman. Episode 70 is with a good friend of mine, Mr. Fish Alcorn from Alleyway Customs. He is a nationally recognized builder and painter and an all-around good guy. He's promoting a show uh, in Daytona he does every year and partners with Adam Mac Harley-Davidson. He's going to talk a little bit about that. I want to make sure you visit our sponsors. I want to thank the Arlen Nest Motorcycle Company. Go to their site arlenest.com and you will save 10% and receive free shipping in the lower 48 when you use the discount code garagebuilt10. We're also brought to you by Bell Helmets USA. Follow at Bell Helmets underscore power to see the latest in helmet design and safety. See your local Bell Helmets dealer to order yours today. Electric lighting, top shelf LEDs backed by 30 years of industry leading manufacturing and the best warranty in the marketplace. Use the discount code SPEED2021 for free shipping in USA Lower 48 on all orders over $100 at namscustomproductcycles.com. I'm also brought to you by 1620 Workwear, premium made in the USA workwear, guaranteed for life. Visit 1620usa.com and use the discount code SPEED2022 and you're going to save 20% at checkout. Also, make sure you're following at 1620usa on Instagram. That's where you're going to find all their latest product drops. Hey, listen, this October, some friends of mine and I are having a party. We want you to come. It's the High Seas Rally. It is the only motorcycle rally on a cruise ship, 3,500 of us crazies, four Caribbean ports. Follow at High Seas Rally on Instagram and use the code SPEEDMETAL and you're going to save $100 on your cabin price. Last but not least, our friends over at Team Dream Rides in Maryville, Tennessee. Listen, if you guys are not following Ben and uh and dusty and uh john jessup and the whole team over at dream ride tennessee you're missing out they're great people good friends of ours and they support the podcast now it's time for episode 70 with fish elkhorn You're listening to the Garage Build Podcast with your host, Jason Coleman. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Let's see here. Going down smooth and feeling easy with Jason's tangerine flavored sparkling water. Right? Well, nothing but the best, you know. Today's the Donnie, the start of the Donnie Smith show up in uh, Minneapolis. So, oh yeah, I saw a little something about. Yeah, I wanted to be at that, but I have uh, I have prior commitments here that could potentially derail my ability to travel for a minute with the the whole grandchild thing going on. So, I was I meant to ask what the story is. This doesn't need to be plugged in, Scott. Uh, I I ran a separate cord. That one 
that one's for the actual deal there. So decoration, yeah. decoration. <laughs> well, I didn't know if that cord, if that knowing that that cord works there, I just don't know how long that other cord is that that's fed through there. So I'll figure that out at a later date. All right. So, but. So, um, let's see here. I'm already recording. I just, I always just hit the button and then let, let the conversation start. So, wherever it's going to start. So, um, fish from alleyway. Hey there. <laughs> this is like our third, I think this is our third podcast. We did one at your place. We did one here. The one here was the very first one I ever did. Really? Oh, one time, the time. Well, the first, the first one you'd ever did with, with me or just in general. I think in general. Yeah, I, I remember thinking when you came here, I was like impressed that you had given it like some actual. It wasn't we weren't just going to sit down and talk about fart jokes or anything. You had actually you'd like <laughs> took the day off and you came over and you brought Chris with you and we sat down and it was like a professional thing. It was probably one of the first times I had done a podcast where somebody had actually like shown it the kind of respect that you hope that someone does. You know what I mean? Hey, you know. I'm I'm back on the professional point. I got a little lax there here and there, but I don't know. I always feel like I cover. I, I want to, but there's stuff I want to cover. I want to make note of it to, you know, if it's applicable. Well, I mean, so let's let's start the conversation there. You said that you have you you have points where you were non-professional. What what point was that? <laughs> oh, not not really non-professional, but I like I think the last one that Jason I did. We were just shooting, shooting the breeze. Okay, so it wasn't there wasn't like well, I mean, so there's 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 a reason to do a podcast, and then there's there's a reason to talk about something on a podcast, right? Sometimes people yeah. do podcasts just to actual actually have a certain conversation regarding a certain matter, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, um, you know, depends on. I don't like to come across like I have an agenda either, but but it, for the record, yeah, I'm not quick like that. What do you mean? <laughs> so if you fire off some questions, I'm much better to answer it intelligently if I know what the subject is. <laughs> well, sure, but also at the same time, though, there's not like you will generally come in. Um, you'll generally come in and have a like kind of a kind of a plan, right? I mean, you don't have agenda, but you have you do have. Um, you do have like kind of like some show notes. I was gonna say like you you were like okay, I got some topics. Well, it's just to make sure that I'm providing. Whenever I've done a, enough of these now that I want to make sure I, if if I'm here, you believe in, you know, whatever I or we do as a company. I want to make sure that I provide good content for that. Well, and sure. I mean, and I appreciate that. And that's what I was talking about. Like you were the first person that came in and it was like, okay, this is what I'm here to do. We're going to have this conversation. And there was like some bullet points that you want to make sure that you actually talked about. Right. Like, so you had some things that going on, like, so. Well, that was also a weird time period. That was what, 2019, right? At least. Yeah. That was after the people's champ debacle and all that stuff. So there was some fresh, fresh dirt in the air. <laughs> fresh, better than fresh dirt in the paint yeah um so you have what do you have on your arm <laughs> oh we're gonna talk about that huh? yeah well i mean might as well start there okay. i mean it's it's kind of obvious so like I, everybody's listening right now they don't know they don't they can't see because i don't have a video podcast so I'm not i broke that. My, i broke my arm fractured my knee 
and mess both my wrists up um, getting back involved in some skateboarding business. <laughs> so, I mean, um, let's, so let me read the, let me, let me look at the text. Uh, because that's how I found out about it. I get a, <laughs> I get a, uh, text that says, Hey man, hope all is good with you. Just starting to make everyone aware of a little situation I have going on. I broke my arm, fractured my knee, sprained both my wrists yesterday filming a little promo video at Kona skate park. I don't know what that's going to mean for the upcoming week. Just starting to reach out to everyone in case I can't make some of the events we were committed to. I'm pretty handicapped obviously, but can't really stand up for an extended period of time because of the swelling on my knee, trying to get some stuff figured out. <laughs> I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It was probably one of the longer texts that I got, but I was like, and then there's a picture that followed up of you in a cast, like just kind of chilling out somewhere in, in a uh, chair. That's in the living room. Uh, that was the enthusiastic look on my face, begging the wife for more ice packs. <laughs> yeah. So, why? How did you? Why, first off, when was the last time you skateboarded before the wreck? So before the wreck, I had to figure all this out. Fifteen years since I rode any kind of transitions. So I used to be. A semi-amateur, or I was an amateur. Uh, <laughs> semi-amateur. Se I guess if you're semi-pro, you're still semi-amateur at the you same know. time, right? But anyway, I grew up at Kona Skate Park um, and skateboarded from sixth grade on into skipping college for it and all that stuff. So I got around all right and got back involved with um, some stuff up at Kona Skate Park, which now <clears throat> Kona Skate Park was like a, a boy's home for me. Growing up, we all pretty much lived there. Right. So, was it one of those places where they had like a pro shop? And in the yeah. pro shop, you could buy like soda. You could buy ice, like ice cream and candy bars and no, shit no, like that. No. Kona dogs. Kona dogs? Which was one of the most grossest, disgusting, boiled hot dogs that you could ever be force fed to have in your lunch menu that your parents would give you three bucks a day to get one soda and one, one. hot. Because you get dropped off at Kona. Yeah. And then, there you go. That's that's your day. And the parents loved it because it was like babysitting, you know, but we all, the camaraderie and the friendships that started, and I'm still friends with a lot of those guys I spent, you know, eight hours a day with every day. What year are you talking? You go, you, what, was, where year do you start going to Kona? Started going to Kona probably 85-ish, 85, 86. How old are you then? Uh, let's see. 15. Okay. Yeah, 15. So impressionable, able to get into trouble. I kind of actually kept me out of a lot of trouble till I could get there on my own, <laughs> in my own vehicle and all. But, you know, that's all we cared about was skating. I didn't drink. I right. Didn't, I didn't do. Well, anything. I don't mean trouble like that, but I mean, you know, uh, idle hands, right? You yeah, know, yeah. a little bit of. Uh, I got fortunate in, in that with, with skateboarding, which. You know, and that's another thing about getting back involved with Kona. Like one of my friends is starting to work there again, and he's like, "Man, if I can just keep some kids out of trouble and let them know how thankful they should have should be to have this place to come here every day," and you know, that's a tough lesson to learn or a tough lesson to try to teach kids. Yeah, right. Like the kids that are gonna get that get it almost intrinsically before it even happens. Like they know. You know, when we t when I taught high school, they told us they're like, "Look, you got to understand something. Like you, you know, as a teacher, you go home and if you have kids, you know, you kind of you do 
you still do regular parent stuff, right? You do homework with them and find out how their day was and you have dinner and you maybe you watch some TV or something. Be, be, they were telling us, like, look, you don't, you don't understand what happens to these kids when they go home. Some of these kids go home and they don't have any of that. Yeah. They don't get any, they don't get any interaction with parent. They don't get any discipline. They don't get any, no one checks on them. No one finds out if they had homework. No one helps them do their homework. No one watches TV with them. They, some of them don't have a meal at night. So they come to school and they'll come to school way early. And I didn't understand that like straight out of the gate. Like, you know, why are these kids here at, at school? Like, you know, school starts at seven 30. Right. And they're there at like six 30. I'm like, yeah. what in the hell? I was late for school all the time. Cause to be quite honest with you, I grew up, I, you know, I had two good parents that, that looked after me. And so I didn't realize how thankful I should be. And, and that's kind of the thing I was yeah. saying when you said that trying to teach those kids how to be thankful, you know, some of those yeah. kids that when I went to school, when I taught at school, the only good meal they were going to, the only meal they were going to have in the day was going to be lunch or breakfast. The only safety they had was, you know, inter the only positive interaction they had with an adult was either, you know, in my class or in their other teacher's class or with the principal or something like that. So yeah, they, it's very impressionable. It's very important. They got a, they got a lot of good programs up there that I'm a little loose on. I don't want to misstate any of them, but it's, it's, they put a lot of thought into helping out kids up there and stuff, you know, and it's pretty cool. But I got in, I got back involved again up there because, um, the park's falling apart. Um, the Ramos family um, has owned it since I was a kid. And Marty Ramos uh, is the caretaker of the park. He's our age. Mm -hmm. uh, and I grew up with Marty. He got involved in uh, some motorcycle stuff with the Nash Motorcycle Company in the late 2000s. At The Ramos family bought Stone Edge Skate Park, mm -hmm. and they hosted the Limp Nicky lot there. Really? So he got a handful of bikes built by Nash. And he got this drag bike that's called the KOOK bike. And um, what he decided to do was get the bike fixed, and they're going to raffle it off, uh, which the raffle, I'll have some information posted on my social media stuff so you can link up to that if you wanted to. The, the idea of raffling the bike off is to um, refurbish all of the original concrete on the park. Nice. So, Marty and one of my closest friends contacted me and he's like, Hey, I think you can come by here and help me get this bike running. And, um, we filmed a little promo video on it. Some of it, uh, is, uh, we did and gave to cycle source. will be able to check out, but it's, uh, basically some tips on how to start a bike. It's been sitting for a while. So did I, you do, um, did you, not to interrupt you, but did you, I mean, is this like, so are you, did you guys talk about like having a benefit or, I mean, how is it structured? They're going to, obviously if they want to put money into it. They're going to keep it around. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. As long as Marty's alive, they'll always keep the park open. So yeah. do they still own stone edge? Yep. They still own stone edge too. Okay. So, um, they're going to be doing some stuff according to what I recall from our conversation with getting stone edge brought back up to speed too. But Kona Skate Park is coming up on their 45th anniversary this June, and they're having a big party. A bunch of pros come in from all over the world, and they have little different contests and stuff. So that's the crunch to try to get the park back up to speed and looking good. So right now they're, they're hand sanding with pneumatic sanders rented from an industrial company all of the original concrete. Holy crap. Yeah. So, um, but anywho, <clears throat> I... Uh, I went over there and helped get that bike running, and um, 
Marty was trying to talk me into skating again and all that stuff. And I was like, you know, I, I just broke my hand last February. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I, I can't afford to get hurt. And he kept persuasive, persuasive. And I wasn't getting a lot of exercise. And uh, he ended up giving me a board. And we went out there and I rode around for like about five minutes. That was all you had ridden before you wrecked? No, no. I rode for oh. about seven weeks. And got to where I, okay. was, I got my cardio back up where I could skate for more than 10 or 15 minutes and was making my way back around. They they have redone the pool since I skated it back in our day. Right. Um, you know, and that was my goal is to get where I could ride around in the pool again. And and that's how I got hurt, unfortunately. But I'm not laughing at you getting hurt. I'm laughing at you at the preposterous nature of... <laughs> Somebody who's in like right at 50, 51 years old. I just turned 50. Why not? Why not get back into it? Yeah, right. I mean, you know, but my bones know, are brittle, they don't heal as well. I, I can, you know, you know, it, it for um, mentally to take a break from you know, I, I called we talked on the phone when I first started. I was like, we we're talking about you riding BMX or right, and he it just getting away from. You know, I personally feel super fortunate. I get to do what I do with with the shop every day. Right. But you know, there there's satisfaction in completing jobs, but there's a lot, often not a lot of fun. You know, in the grind of it all, and there's a lot of stress. So being able to go to the skate park for thirty minutes once or twice a week with no headache, no hassle, nothing, big smile on your face when you leave. You know, and uh, so hopefully I heal up. And, you know, we'll see, but the knee's still pretty, pretty rough. But That's one of the things that I think um, I'm learning as I get older now that I really need to have something that's not, you know, when we do what is largely considered a hobby to a lot of people, the motorcycle thing, even the building. I mean, there's people who build as uh for hobby, you know, that that's what they do. That's their getaway, right? Well, yeah. we've turned it into our daily. Yeah. So having, having some distance from that, I mean, you know, we were just talking to lunch, right? And with, with, with Steve and he was like, well, when do you ride? I'm like, oh, that's just it. I don't, you know, I don't yeah. get a chance to ride. And I was talking with Cody today before you got here Cody called me and I'm like, he's like, Cameron called him last night and said, Hey, I want to go to, I want to plan a trip with you guys and I want to go to Tennessee and I'm, we, we want to ride the tail of the dragon or whatever. Right. Cause his brother lives right there in Maryville. But, he, but Cody was like, well, that's great. I'm, I want to see you guys, but can we do something that's not motorcycle centric? Yeah. I mean, which, okay. I mean, I'm down, you know, yeah. everything I did last year. I mean, this last year, the amount of time that I put into my daily job. And then the other thing I piled on top of it in order to do that effectively, it required all these other things that I didn't think about. And dude, I just, I traveled and traveled and I was, I felt like I was never home. I felt like when I was home, I wasn't in the moment. I felt like, you know, and it's my own fault. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying I couldn't believe <clears throat> how much stuff I had to do all the time. Yeah. It's it definitely the stress and the, and the obligation can pile up and give you stress. And, um, you know, before I got hurt, I found the skateboarding to be very helpful with that. 
<laughs> now it's a reality check, but you know. Are you going to ride again? I, I plan on trying. I definitely don't. I thought I was making conscious decisions to, you know, to be very reserved. You were I, getting air in some of the videos, dude. Like yeah. legit air. Yeah, I mean, you know, and that's that's being pretty conservative. You know, you know what your limits are, certainly. Um, but to get hurt this bad, you know, is kind of, I got to figure out. I, there's people, you know, there's people that depend on you. Yeah. And uh, I got very lucky <clears throat> that I was about to start two big projects. And I wasn't trying to complete one on a deadline because that would have been not good. But Let's talk lucky. about backing up, like, since we're on the subject of skating. The 80s was, by and large, a lot happened in in the skateboarding community. I mean, the skateboarding community was really not what it what it is today, and it certainly wasn't what it became in the 80s. It became something in the 80s is what I'm trying to say, I guess. You know, there was always – there was those – Southern California had the, the skateboard competitions with those narrow boards and all that stuff, right? And then the boards got wider, and everybody – that if you haven't seen – that Lords of Dogtown movie, I would highly recommend it because that kind of shows you the arc of where it starts. But where that ends is in the 80s, right? Where you had guys like Tony Hawk, Stacey Peralta. um, Who's the other one that rode with Stacey that was the kind of the problem child in that movie? He was kind of the protagonist. Oh, Jay Adams? Well, Jay Adams, no, he just passed away in the last six six years. I knew Jay a little bit. But I'm talking about there's a dude um, who was there was Powell and Peralta, mm-hmm. who was the, who was the guy who wrote for for GS. Well, there's Christian Asoy that was kind of Tony Hawk's rival in the late '80s when it all kind of came back, right? You know, and Christian was definitely uh, Tony was very straight laced. Yep, and Christian, Christian was not was a little more rebellious, which you know they always tell people and. You know, there's like was two different kinds of skateboarders. Well, that's and, what I wanted to get to get at was I'm trying to think of who the guy was that was in there was the in that movie there was the Stacy Peralta character that was the kid with the long blonde hair, but there was somebody that was with him. I want to say his name was Tony. Tony Alva. Yeah, Tony yeah, yeah. Alva. Okay. Well, Tony Ta- Alva was you know very iconic. Um, you know, again, if you've seen the movie, you, you know, but t- Tony Alva was the rock star. Yeah. Of, of all of it, you know, and um, Tony still skates today. So, but what I'm getting is like, so there was that in the 70s. That's like 79, 80, right? 81. Yeah, yeah. And then the 80s take off, right? And in the in the skateboard community, you had, um, you had the the magazine that ended up, it was a, it was a Big Brother. Big Brother was a ways. Well, there was. But it wasn't the. It was like eighty six, eighty seven. Transworld and there was Thrasher. So Transworld magazine was basically a company that was backed. If if I'm speaking and I understand correctly, Transworld was backed by Tracker Trucks, which is more of the straight laced. They had the pros like Tony Hawk and Mike McGill and all those guys, and then independent backed Thrasher magazine, which had the punk bands in it and the alternative lifestyles and, you know, you know more of a, a, you know, music and skate kind of magazine. And, and then Big Brother came and really. Big Brother was like mid-90s mid, mid 90s or something like was that. Was it that okay. late? No, because that was Vision Streetwear. 
Was it not? I thought that's who started Vision Streetwear was the Big Brother guys. Because I got out. Because didn't it roll into Jackass somehow through Bam Margera or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, Envision and Sims and all those were kind of the same company, you know. But, I mean, that was, that was a different time period, uh, you know, in the, like, to be a skateboarder in high school in the late 80s was not accepted. Yeah, so there was Jason Jesse is who who where I'm trying to arrive at the, this yeah. this real outlaw kind of guy that can't be pinned down. He's like one of the first real pros that comes out of like the the that's what he's doing. He's got no he's got no fear. He's got he he comes off as fearless. He basically comes out and from what I understand was the guy that made ramp riding really scary and he was really good at it. Well. <clears throat> in relevance to this motorcycling stuff as some of the listeners might know but jason jesse was one of the first skateboarders that was into motorcycles and Harley's. one of the first ones to get tattooed and that was a big deal yeah. i mean i can remember when having a tattoo was if somebody had a tattoo if you knew they had a tattoo it was a big deal yeah you know and now not so much it's one of my favorite memes is you know 20 years ago a dude with sleeves meant that he had been locked up. Now it means that uh, he has a he has a nice little bistro restaurant and does a, a really nice you know yeah. uh, cooks a really nice broth or whatever. I don't I know. See, what the, I seen him. Yeah, Jason Jesse was a, a major influence on uh, how I got into motorcycles and definitely. Well, put it this way: when I skated for Blockhead skate skateboards, and. I like Jason Jesse so much. I want to skate for Santa Cruz so bad. Right. So bad. And um, I had, I was, Thrasher Magazine was at Kona and they were doing, I forget what they call it. It was an amateur spotlight or whatever. Sure. Um, but I got canned from Blockhead because I had Blockhead stickers on my Santa Cruz Jason Jesse board. And we all tried to emulate them, you know, from the one rail to do, doing your hand plants the way he does. Right. Huge airs to fakey. You know, he had like a, a distinct style that was just ballsy. You know, and that Santa Cruz, I think it was the Streets of Fire video came out. And I mean, he was doing hand plants of all varieties as good as anyone, stalling and straight to fakie. That was just unheard of to go backwards. Right. Go back into it backwards. That's what I'm saying. He was one of these fearless dudes. He wasn't, yeah. he wasn't the, he, and he was pretty fluid too. He wasn't, he wasn't Tony Hawk graceful. Yeah. He wasn't, but he was definitely, I mean, he was definitely scary and, and, and yeah. dangerous in the way well, he rode. And then it had the off-board lifestyle that was, you know, I mean, the guy was in the Duke's car club before any white people were into Mexican Mexican culture or lowriders or anything like that. You know, he's one of those guys that, you know, that can influence people, but he influences people because he has, you know, a vision that's ahead of its way, way ahead of what everybody's about to be into. He's five years ahead. What do you, what do you think the internet has done to um, communities like the skateboard community and the punk rock community? And because you're involved, you were involved pretty heavily in that as well. Do you think that the internet has enhanced, ruined or debilitated the, those types of counterculture things? Um, well, the exposure and the availability of it has forced everyone to up their ante, you know, the ante of all of that gets up, up to every day, you know, cause you can just find, there's always a, 
there's a 13 year old kid ripping harder than you would ever be able to skate. Well, and, and I find all that very inspirational. So do I. So do know. I. I mean, I watch I watch ten year olds. There's a kid named um, Jaden Tuscateri, Tuscateri, I believe. Um, I'm I'm probably saying that wrong, but he's an Australian kid that can rip the fucking guitar. I mean, yeah, yeah. rip it. Yeah. To 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 a point to where you're watching this kid, and he's like ten. Well, it and it. <clears throat> It depends on what counterculture activity you're talking about, whether it's skate or it can be very positive for skateboarding. I just mean in general. So it's like, okay, for so music, it's very different. So back up, right? So when you, when you're talking about, when you're talking about Jason, Jason, Jesse and doing the hand plants and the, to the fakey and all that stuff, and you're talking about how, how mind numbing and how you, when you saw that in person versus see it in a video or yeah. hear about it or see somebody shoot a picture and put it in thrash and magazine or thrasher magazine right yeah. it goes into thrasher magazine and it's a picture of him doing a handstand or you know a hand plant rather with his board and all that stuff and it's the the photograph is perfect and it's a full page back and i'm thinking back in the 80s right yeah, yeah. there was no way to capture that well the crazy without thing being about live it, the crazy thing about all that stuff that happened before video so when you got all of us would wait for the new issue of both of those magazines to come out Transport right or thrasher when those photos came out and you saw whatever trick was being done if it was a new trick or something different you didn't even know how that was accomplished that's what i'm saying that's you had no idea how that was accomplished and like for us skating at kona you know like nowadays with with the structures that the kids have to skate today, they can build up from something that's knee high to waist high to chest high to eight foot high and be able to do that trick in a very short time period because, you know, there was, there wasn't that much stuff to skate when we would try to emulate all the tricks in the magazines on the smaller embankments at Kona until, and there was no, there was no midway transition before mini ramps came out. It was either that or the vert ramp. So, so it's a hard, but so now, you, th so you think it's, it's, it, it's definitely made things a little, uh, I don't know. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at, it's like, you know, uh, I'm not trying to lead you into an, into a, agreeing me, agreeing with me on a certain subject. What I'm saying is, is like in whole, do you think it's at hand enhanced, debilitated, or just kind of, you know, I think it's the experience, I think it's enhanced at all in a positive way, you know, um, you know, like um, you can get inspired by any kind of video, whether you might, whatever, let's just say you got into skating mini ramps again. Right. And then all of a sudden you see this video on your Instagram feed of somebody skating curbs. And you're like, oh man, wow, that looks fun. But you would never get exposed to all of that overflow. And, it, you know. I think that prevented a lot of kids in the Midwest from actually having an opportunity to do some of the things that the kids in California did. And, you know, I don't know how it's funny not growing up in Florida, but remember thinking about what Florida was like when I was a kid, right? I didn't know yeah. you didn't have an idea. There wasn't YouTube. So yeah. you learned what you, you, you watch Scarface. <laughs> right. So you knew what Miami was supposedly like, right? right? You'd see Miami vice would be, you know, they'd be in Key West or, you know, so you just think that Florida, when you're in the Midwest, you just think that Florida is all 100% beaches, 
palm trees yeah. and you hear about you know when you get a little bit older you hear you hear about spring break or maybe you saw one of your friend's older brother or sister's like spring break spring break pictures or you saw mtv spring break but that was it right. but when when it comes to you know trying to figure out a trick even when they did like you know freestyle and magazine would do like or bmx plus would do like a how-to you know, ride your bike like this, then grab the front brake, then kick it around. Then, do, you know, and they'd show all these steps of the picture. You try to get it together, but shit, man, if you no could go one. ride at Huntington beach yeah. for a day and Martin, uh, Apareo was there and Eddie Fiola and RL Osborne and even Fred blood, who really wasn't a pro, uh, come to find out after all these years later, um, it was kind of a faked deal, right? Um, that, but you could have seen those dudes ride and you could have learned from them. So the dudes in the Midwest, I was never going to California as a kid, not to go freaking ride a BMX bike. Well, you know, and you, you didn't know that there was a lot of other variables that didn't make that picture of what somebody was doing work on the terrain you were, you were riding. Well, on not only was... that, but you find out too, that they're staged. Right. <laughs> I've since found that there's a lot of pictures that were in BMX magazines, specifically in advertisements where you're like, yeah. You find out now that that was staged, you know, and you're like, Get the fuck out of here. Like, really? Right, right. I, I broke my ass trying to fucking replicate <laughs> this trick a hundred times, right? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know for sure, but I do know getting into the sponsored amateur game mm -hmm. and being around um, some different situations where there were the photographers from the magazine there and stuff. And, um, you know, there was a couple sponsored amateur guys. They would be doing a shoot of a, you know, they're, they're there. The photographers would be there covering for the magazines or getting potential ads shot or whatever. And if it was a sponsored amateur, maybe they're shooting you for your board company and they can get paid. So if you had a specific trick, they would ask you to repeat that. Like one of my photos I had in Transworld Skateboard Magazine was a photo in the pool at Kona where I got hurt. And I was asked to do that trick repeatedly, even though it was semi-organic. But they're like, no, you didn't get that one. No, you didn't get that one point of the ramble is that it was also very frowned upon if you never landed that trick that they didn't have good material in my experience maybe yeah some, maybe some people ran some photos that were you know yeah you gotta you there. gotta land the you gotta yeah. land it what i'm saying is is for the you know back when they were shooting on fucking film yeah. they couldn't afford to take a thousand pictures right yeah. well now i i watch people now and they're like they hold the button now it's like and i'm like okay what you're not you're you're going to get a good picture out of a fucking hundred of them. Hey, I thought that was simple until I had to do the riding shot for the one torque. Right. <laughs> feature I did. I'm like, how come it's so crappy pictures still? And I just ran that. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, you hold the button down and, and try to get my, one. my point is, is that, you know, I watch videos now of kids doing stuff and I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Like, yeah, they, you know, backflip fakies are nothing now. Where and you know what else is really cool? It's not just a technical thing. You know what I mean? There, there's a lot of young kids I see where I'm like, man, that guy's got ripping good style. Yeah. He does it fluidly, like it's effortlessly, kills all kinds of very difficult tricks that I know how hard, even the simple ones, you know, backside Smith grinds around corners for 15 feet. Know. You know, that's, that's a straight up, you lock up, you fall backwards over and onto your back or head. Yeah, and these kids are just doing them like, oh yeah, gravy. I know. I see kids and I see kids watching BMX videos at skate parks and stuff, and they got no helmet on. They got skinny yeah. jeans. I don't know how they can move around in skinny jeans, and there are yeah. no brakes on their bikes, yeah. and they're they're doing. And I'm just like, okay, 
this is not something that I can do ever again. I just have to accept, I have to accept my age for what it is. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> so when are you going to heal up? What do you, you, you broke, we talked about what you broke up, what you broke. When are you going to heal up? You think? Um, I already have decent movement in my arm. Um, they told me I taught the orthopedic surgeon and, uh, I said, you know, if I wait till fall, you know, maybe to consider getting back on the board again, you know, um, but in my mind, I need to feel like the body can take a slam again. Mm -hmm. Cause that wasn't the first slam by any means that happened in that seven weeks. You know what I mean? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, get like, beat up a little bit there's, like every time you ride, there are right? some pretty good ones, you know, because the thing about it is you, you forget how to fall. There's a big part of that safety thing there that I think a lot of people getting back into it get hurt because you don't have, when you got to that level that you're remembering you could skate at, that took you five, six, eight, ten years to get there. You had a million falls. You know how to get out of one. Yeah. You know, you know how to not, you need to you know how to get situated. to. Don't you know, lock up. Don't put your hands down. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Get your board away from you so you don't fall on it. You don't fall on your head. And you forgot all that. You're getting the tricks down. And then all of a sudden something happens. And all of a sudden you're flying through the air. And, you know, that's why I was like, I'm just going to wear full pads until we right. get this down. Right. Thank God I was wearing, if I wasn't wearing wrist guards, I probably would have easily broke both my wrists. So this prevents you from playing the guitar right now, right? No guitar. So how long has it been since you played guitar? I've, st before this happened, I would play, you know, for a half hour. Here and there, uh, probably three or four times a week. Nothing serious. Right. Goof off. Keep your motor skills up. I just like, I hear a song I like. Usually it's a punk rock song, so it's not very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I go and I have the amps hooked up at the shop and stuff, you know, usually in the morning. I'll go, I crank them up. You can crank them up as loud as you want there and blow your eardrums out and have a little fun for a second and put it back down. And, you know, the guys in the band want to get together and jam a little bit. We've been talking about maybe doing that, but it's, you know, that started, we were going to do another show before COVID hit around that one documentary they were filming and all that stuff. And now it's, uh, so they're kind of itching to at least jam, which has been a lot of fun because it's not as serious as it used to be when you're touring. Right. You can just get the fellas together, order a pizza, maybe have a beer or two and play some music, just blow it out and everybody goes home. Do you feel like we've recovered completely from COVID yet? Do you, I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, your business, my business, uh, the, the general consensus around, do you feel like, I mean, obviously it's not completely done, but I'm talking about recovered economically and financially and business-wise and on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I, I see fewer and fewer people wearing masks and things like that. I mean, do you, yeah, do you I, feel I like we've gotten to the other side of it? I think so, but I think it left a permanent... Um left a permanent mark in that some of those jobs that uh, got, for example, I did some work on a guy's bike that was local to Jacksonville area, and he worked in one of the home stores, Lowe's, Home Depot, or whatever, but he was in one of the appliance departments. Right. And they slowly phased him from one department to another as supply ran out you know i think we're still having supply issues certainly you know um indirectly related to COVID. but i think a lot of those jobs in, including the example i'm using that guy's job isn't really there anymore they found a way for someone to do that at home you know and um he's transferred around he had to move out of state you know to try to kind of pick up whatever he can get but um 
you know, so there's still some. Do you feel like that's part of um, what's par for the course just in general and that that's part of the way the world works is that, you know, we're going to be throwing these curve balls. We're going to, you know, I hear people um, pontificate's not the right word, but they kind of romanticize about, well, you know, it was never like this before and back in my day and that kind of stuff. And I just feel like, you know, when you look at history, you know, there was the Spanish flu outbreak at the end of World War One. There was a pandemic-like event in like 68 or 69 here in the States that was a similar flu event. And I just feel like, I don't know. I mean, do you feel like, do you feel like this is part of what, what we're up against and it's this kind of thing isn't going to go away and jobs and, and job markets are cyclical and finances are cyclical? Or do you feel like this is definitely left a permanent problem? I think, uh, I, th I think it, it impacted our country in a time where people are taught not to be tough about it. And I'm not talking about, you know, I've certainly had some personal impacts from people having sure. serious problems with COVID, but I think in general, you know, it's not about do or don't wear your mask or do or don't get a shot. It's just that everyone, I don't really feel like they're as tough as they used to be. You know, that's not the attitude of get through it. It's the attitude of let's harp on, what what's been wrong and drag it out and you know it doesn't seem like everyone's ready to get back to work you know and 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 work hard to fix the problems whatever you know they may be directly related to covid i know we have some have had some before a speculated economic crisis you know we had a lot of supply problems because of covid and what do you think? So I want to talk a little bit about that because a lot of people that listen to this are motorcycle industry people, right? And so right. we all got kind of, we all, some of us saw some of the best recorded sales years because you could sell, you ended up selling everything you had in one way or another. Sure. Others didn't do so well. They didn't, they didn't weather the storm for whatever reason, but how did alleyway, how did alleyway, not like, I'm not saying like, hey, how did you get through it, good or bad? I'm saying, how did you get through it? What did you do? What kind of move? What kind of moves did you make? What kind of adjustments did you make to to the offering? I mean, tell us specifically what Alleyway did to to make it work. Well, fortunately, um, with us not doing hardly any service work, um, I was transi transitioning some people into where I had a service guy part-time here and there. Right. Um, that's all kind of been eliminated now where we're just doing specialty work, building bikes, paint, fabrication, whatever. So we didn't have a lot of issues with the supply of like getting tires. We didn't, we didn't need tires weekly. I needed tires right. quarterly for a, a bike build or something like that, which still had some issues with, for example, putting a, a quick 21 inch front wheel on a bagger, you right. know, a road King or something like that, you know, I know I had some issues with getting that particular tire as an example, but fortunately myself and the people involved with alleyway, um, do so much rounded stuff that's generated organically in house that, I mean, the summer we were busier than we'd ever been. Yeah. You know, where are um, you busy mostly with onesie twosie projects with large scale projects? What is the, what is the balance of, of what you, what you've been working on? Um, the balance is predominantly paint. Mm -hmm. um regionally and nationally a, a good little bit local um but i ship a lot of stuff out of state um and then the bike builds fabrication projects and stuff like that are secondary to paint 
for the most part, just because, you know, I think we all try to struggle with that balance of trying to get an actual bike build to pay the bills. And, you know, when you got overhead, you got to, you got to make that certain amount of money. And, you know, what do you think is the best recipe right now for, um, for a successful bike shop? I mean, is there, I know it's not a one size fits all situation, but you know, I think we're, I think we're people poor in this industry right now. Yeah. Um, I say that because, you know, we've, we've had some people cycle through here. Um, we, you know, we, we think we, we feel like we pay pretty well. Right. But what do you, what do you, how do you feel about the, the health of our industry in general? Um, given my, my experience has been the help needs an incentive program to feel like they're making the most of their opportunity that they have in the moment to keep them from going elsewhere. Do you feel like that's just something that's basic, uh, basically a result of the kind of people that are involved in motorcycles, or is that something that is just the kind of people that are around that aren't, don't, aren't already gainfully employed these days? I, I don't know. Um, it could be a mix of all of it, honestly, you know, and um, locally, in our area, I've, I've seen some shops pop up and I've seen some shut down, you know, and, uh, you know, I haven't been in it as long as a lot of people, but we all know it's, it's not a gravy train every day. And I think a lot of people think that it's, oh, I'm going to do my hobby and have fun. Well, you know, there's an enormous amount of grunt work <laughs> that sucks. I mean, I sanded on a frame cutting tabs off for the next prop chopper project for three and a half hours the other day eating dust yeah <laughs> what, what year did alleyway start again professionally 2013 okay so you're coming up on almost on 10 almost on 10 years what what happened where where were you tell us uh, tell me a little bit about where you were at mentally uh, and where you were at skill set wise when you said that i think i can do this this is this is this is what i want to do so i'm gonna do it but kind of paint the picture for for listeners of where you were at where you were at in your in your life and where you're at mentally and where you were at physically and skill wise when you felt like you could do it um well first of all i never really felt 100 percent that i could do it i was just gonna try till <laughs> i couldn't anymore mm -hmm. you know but my recipe honestly was um kept the overhead low I was fortunate enough to bounce around from uh, a couple commercial storage units that I outgrew. Um, but I was taking, when I couldn't get customers to pay me for a service uh, that I may or may not have been qualified to do as far as, you know, fabrication or, or painting or whatever, I was taking my own money and I was buying, uh, well, I, I, I did really well on, um, stock swing arm shovel heads mm -hmm. and kind of restoring them with my twist on them. Yeah. And I was selling those on eBay. Okay. So, so I would sell those on eBay and I, on the back end, I had to learn photography. Um, you know, my wife's always been very supportive of, of, you know, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. And she had bought a camera she was supposed to <laughs> get into as a hobby and was, you know, nice enough to let me kind of take over. So I was shooting all of my own bikes I was completing. I was, you know, I had makeshift paint booths because my my thought process was, well, 
I can already get the bike together. What's lacking to make it look like a, a professional bike? And it was paint and upholstery and seats. Which is yeah. something you're extremely proficient in. But that was the, I, I, I couldn't afford to hire a painter because painting was expensive. It still is. Yeah. And I had, um, you know, some of the guys that were residual from the shops, um, some of the, the older guys that worked there that I was basically paying them to come freelance wherever I was at. Um, my friend Stefan from Gainesville area, he had come up a bunch. My friend Polly that used to work at Bubba's shop is still a great friend of mine. Would He'd come by and I'd have more fingerprints on that primary page, that shovel head manual, because I just couldn't figure out how to make the components work. And yeah, One of know. the things you told me early on in our friendship was that you had that you paid people to come in like you had a work, you had a job that needed to be done. It was something that you weren't confident in. So you would pay somebody to come in and teach you basically how to do that. Yeah. I had, I had those, those friends were cool enough that, you know, they gave me a very reasonable price. They knew what I was trying to accomplish. They felt sympathetic, but every Saturday for three, three or better years, I want to say that was school. That was the only time, Paul, could come by the shop and I, I didn't have anything else going on that day. If somebody came by, I was like, well, you're going to have to hang out. And I had a list of tasks that I couldn't figure out. I couldn't get, and it was, let's start addressing them. And I, I still have manila envelopes of my handwritten. How do you check a charging system? How do you clean a carburetor? So are you, know? are you a, are you a visual learner then? You're, Layman's you... terms for sure. So, I mean, like visual learners, somebody that would be, I show you how to do it. And we kind of do it together and then you can do it on your own. Not always, not always. Um, you know, I, I got a lot of it just by service manuals. So you can just, actually read a service manual because that's something that I have a hard time delineating. I can't disseminate that information properly all the time out. Like if they have, uh, there's some manuals that have like artists drawn pictures of the parts. Right, right. Instead of an actual photograph of the picture. Yeah. And... Uh, I mean, like the dark ones in the climber manuals. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I wish I could see what that other bolt is. It, it's telling me to turn it. I don't even know what that's supposed to go in there. Yeah, well, it, specifically transmissions, like I can build a transmission. If you show me, I mean, I know how the parts are supposed to feel, like mm -hmm. the fit, and I know, how, I, I just have that, I've, I've developed that memory, of dexterity yeah. memory of like how the gears are supposed to go and everything. Well, I, what I, know, I can't remember the stack. Like, I don't have an eidetic memory where I can look at something no, one time and remember it. Not unless I've, I've, I've done it a bunch, you know. And, you know, to, to get back to what you, you were asking me about, you know, um, I got very lucky in that, um, you know, I had my, my friend Mike Wilson had a bunch of projects mm -hmm. that he needed to get done. And, you know, even early on, like Tom Dowd's bike that we're about to build the 69, he had a project bike that we just worked on in multi, all kinds of different stages. And, you know, I had my friends that were very supportive that believed and, you know, we can, we can, we can get it right. But, you know, um, I did so much of that internally. So, you know, that was kind of the joke. Like when you and I met, mm -hmm. I was like, I can be a hermit. I don't, I don't even, I want to, I want to do the work in, in the shop. And I had attempted to figure out a way where I didn't need to go and do anything because I could market it all on eBay, which you can still do. I got it. You know, I got stuck a couple things for sale on eBay right now. It's, it's a pain in the butt. It's not for anybody that you got to make a little investment and believe in your product, 
but you know, I sold a, that Sheriff Special 69 pan shovel bike that I completely refurbished and it had a modern twist to it. I sold that bike to a collector in Washington State, but to back it up further than that, I when I started Alleyway, I had a parts bin which consisted of a Paco Springer, a Paco frame, um, and I was wanting to build a bobber-style bike like I like to build with the Springer sure. bars and all that stuff. So I was working on getting a bike together. Um, my wife and I exchanged Christmas presents one year or about to, and she's like, what do you want for Christmas? I was like, I want a shovelhead motor. So we, me and her drove down to Miami and picked up a shovelhead motor, came back, and I put that bike together. And, you know, there was a lot of people that would have told me that what I should sell that bike for the price. But I painted it. And I put it on eBay and I put a price what I thought a bike builder would charge to do that. And somebody bought it, buy it now. A collector up in Northern California did. Well, there's your answer. I think then, something's worth whatever somebody else is willing to but then, pay for it. But then I took that money and I always, with the company, I always reinvested into something else that I knew I could sell again and keep. You want to keep, you have an, an investment bike and you want to put all your skill into it. And then when it's done, you want to sell it for profit for whatever you might need money, money you borrowed <laughs> See, for yourself. I didn't know you're supposed then, to sell them. I like to just keep them all. That's well, why I have so many. <laughs> I didn't, right? But then I'd always take seven or eight thousand dollars, like when I sold that uh, that bobber shovel head. Mm -hmm. It was for something in the mid teens, and then I bought that '69 Sheriff Special bike from a guy in Daytona for like uh, it was like around six grand. It was a running bike. And I needed a front fender and uh, the tail, the hinge tail section. And I bought my 48 SNS panhead kit. Well, it was like a portion of a kit bike. They ended up making that kit bike. So it kept rolling over and rolling over. And I took the $15,000 of one bike and I invested into two project bikes and then sold those. And that's how I kept making money when I didn't have customers, you know? And then I was doing. I started doing the pogo seats for the stock bikes and I was selling those on eBay and paint I started painting locally and just make it work. But you know, that's, that's the way I did it without having a maintenance department where I didn't have to, I didn't ever want to put in anybody's safety at risk, not knowing what I was doing. Like an employee. Right. Or, or, or their livelihood. I mean, do you, okay. So do you, how do you, I mean, I, I'm not somebody that enjoys working by myself and I did it right. I did it for a long time where it was just me and I was doing service work because I've never been just, I've never approached it from the same angle as you did. I build bikes for people, right. but that's not what I'm in business to only do. Right. right. Uh, and I'm not a painter and I'm a fabricator. I can fabricate. I can make stuff. I know how my problem is, is I know how stuff is supposed to look. I know how stuff is supposed to operate. So if I can't do that, mm -hmm. then I'm worthless. Like if I don't already believe I'll like, I know I can do this, right? I've got to have it in my head. I do the same thing when I buy something. By the time I spend the money to buy something, I know exactly what it is I want, how much I'm willing to pay for it, how much it costs over here, how much it costs over there, what, the, what it should cost, you know what I mean? Like I do yeah, all yeah. the research on it. So I talk myself out of doing a lot of things instead of talking myself into doing a lot of things. I think that's one of my shortcomings, but I just, how do you work by yourself? Music. 
I, if, if the music's, if there's never music playing, uh, I always say like, you might shut it off for some reason, talk to somebody that came by or right. have an important conversation you have to have or, right. or if I'm wiring, I can't listen to music or doing fractional to decimal equivalent math to machine something. But for the most part, I have some kind of, uh, what the hell's the, uh, just background music, right? Yeah. Just something well, or, kind of- you know, I'll, well, I'll usually have like a Pandora channel going. Gotcha. And not some slow crap. Right. Somebody keeps you motivated. And then, you know, that's, that's your friend. <laughs> it gets to be your friend during the day. How, um, so you had, uh, switching gears a little bit, you had your second annual alleyway show at yep. Daytona. Um, we had some weird weather this year in Daytona. It rained pretty much every day somewhere, somehow, and it was a little chillier. Yeah. How did the how did how did the show go? The show was awesome. Um, you know, I, the testament of friendship uh, that the builders I invited showed in the resilience of the day, because it was pouring down rain. Yeah, when everyone contacted me, and it stayed raining in Daytona from what I understand until two or three o'clock in the afternoon, which was kind of a bummer for the show. Because um, a lot of people didn't come up from Daytona for it, and I don't blame them because they right. would have had to ride in a car or something. But, um, you know, the Adamac, the dealership that um, we were hired to do the show again, um, we're there to put on a show. So they said rain or shine. The bands, we added bands this year, right. which ended up being a really, really good thing. Um, but, the you know, all the guys showed up pushing their – we had a big – we did a big tent in the parking lot this year since it was so hot the year before, and we decided just to stage the show under the tent. If it continued to sprinkle all day, we would just do the builder show bikes under the tent, and we'd move the bands underneath the covered area up by the building, and the show was going to go on. Right. But really, you know, for all the, all the builders to show up, you know, I, I want to thank them again if they're listening because uh, that, was a, that, was, that was a big deal to me for them to come up and, st- and still set up and um you know everybody still came out um i added this year i want to do more of a moon eyes feel to it and because i was struggling for something to make our show a little bit different than the the stuff you know the regular stuff everybody's getting all week sure. in daytona so i added three high-end cars um that my buddies brought from all over the state and put those in the mix of the builders corral and it looked amazing you know, it, for a showcase for all of that is something you don't get to see, you know. And to have um, live music, um, and more importantly, live music within our genre. Right. You know, to have, like, a guy playing out. Yeah, so the Broken Spoke this year had some weird bands, like, yeah. during the day. And it was like, oh, it's okay. I all always right. have felt that the shows in Daytona that have had, um, you know, music that was what we would all listen to. You know, I mean, that's how it was at at the People's Champ uh, Friday night show at Born Free. I, the whole night at that bar, they were playing everything you wanted to hear. It was awesome. So wow. let's 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 switch and talk about that because you're you're going to Born Free again. Yep, doing a 1990 FXRP for the FXR show. So um, that's going to be a pretty high end bike with some pretty unique stuff on it. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about some of the parts that are on it and some of the, okay. So the bike is being done for um, Jeff Brown, 
who's a tattoo artist at Right Coast Tattoo um, in Delaware. Um, he got a hold of me because he's really good friends with Mike Wilson's up in the Northeast tattooing. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so he, uh, he had already been following the shop, I think, a little bit. And um, he was going to try to assemble this bike. Um, I don't want to get too long-winded about the story about the bike, but he essentially got an all-original, 97% original 1990 FXRP from a guy in a barn. Um, he had sold a dream car, from what I understand, and part of the agreement was that they he was going to now build his dream bike that he wants to do presently. Uh, so it's a 124R S&S crate motor, <clears throat> excuse me, Baker 6 and uh, six into 5. Um, he's very close friends with Oliver Jones, the cut rate. Right. So Oliver had a set of wheels made for him from Lindahl, which uh, if I'm getting the name correctly, they were a Kim tall, Kim tab, Kim tab, Kim tab design wheel. Yeah. So it's um, uniquely a 21 up front and an 18 rear, right. 18, 4.5 rear. Um, but that is, I believe Oliver's told me that's the first set. So, um, that's super rad. And, um, you know, Jeff's really going all out on the bike. So, uh, he's got a WW cycles swing arm, as you know, that we just got done putting the bearings. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Lindall, uh, rotors and pads, um, all PM, uh, calipers and hand controls. Um, and then from there, uh, I did the paint, um, which we haven't talked or, or showed the paint yet but it's um it's very traditional um but from there we're just gonna kind of do like a uh a resto mod type deal with the bike where it's all going to be you know modern components but look like a 90 right on and you're using uh you're using one of the moto gadget units right yep excited about the moto gadget electronic technology right so more so that, I mean, I like the premise of, of all of that in that it, you know, um, as, as to the best of my research, we'll just take whatever bike you want and give it all the features of the electronics of a brand new bike from the alarm system to programming your lights and all that stuff, which is, which is great for his bike because we're going to upgrade uh, all of the electronics to the, the lighting to LED yeah. and, and do some slick stuff where, you know, um, you know, it'll have an alarm, it'll start with his phone you know, with the new Bluetooth one. Right. And, uh, and more importantly, make all the wiring really simple where you don't have to figure out, um, like all your hand control wiring. We're going to do those small three button switches, but they have that pod where it all hooks into everything. And through the Bluetooth, it registers it in, um, the, uh, in the mode gadget box and, uh, all the, all the electrical junctures, once you get them to the box or plug and play and, you know, so, um, I think it's going to be really slick. We haven't decided on exhaust yet. Um, but yeah, that's, um, do we have four weeks left, five weeks left, something like that? I think it's longer than that. It's it? end of June, June 28th or so. But, oh, okay. Uh, so there's, okay. Eight, 10, oh, shit, almost 12 weeks. It's quite a few. And then the bike's going to be transported to California and we'll fly in. Yeah. You know? So you don't have that three, four day trek. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things with the way your shop is that you really, you know, everybody wants to see you at more stuff, but you have to basically shut the lights off if you're not there. Yeah, in which I remember those days too for me when going to Sturgis back in 
16 and 17 when I, you know, worked by myself primarily. Uh, you just, you, you rush to get everything done up to the day you leave. You're gone for two weeks and then you come back and then you got to get everything started and your bills still come in and the expenses still come in. The phone calls still come in. We were very lucky to shuffle it all last year and we did, I think 12,000 miles and, uh, there were certainly some shows I would have loved to have been at, but it, um, you know, I think about it all the time. And, um, you know, this year we're doing very few out of towners, um, just because you did congregation last year, right? Yeah. Well, we'll probably do it again this year. Um, you know, I'd like to go to that show. I I didn't realize, I don't, for whatever reason, I didn't realize where that was, but I, I, I think I need to go to, I need to go to some more stuff like that. I mean, I know, you know, I, go, I always go to the big ones. I'm always mm-hmm. at Sturgis. Yeah. I'm always at Daytona. But um, I'd like to go some of these smaller, uh, not kitschy. They're not kitschy by any, by any stretch of the imagination. They're not small shows by any stretch of the imagination. It's, it's They're a, very well attended. They're very good shows. They're just, it's not an all-encompassing, right? So you're yeah, driving. It's a, it's a very well-organized, organic event that's grown and grown into you know, something that, you know, I'm stoked for those guys. We've, we've developed a pretty good working relationship, you know, um, and it's a unique kind of showcase in the, in the building that it's in, you know, but, um, it also has a certain vibe, you know, and, uh, it's, it's really cool. I like it a lot, you know, um, that's one of the things that we've, we've want to make sure we maintain for wheels of steel too. Yeah. We haven't set the venue or the date for that yet, but you know we're going to be bringing that back. You built the trophy for that this year; it was a fucking amazing trophy, and I was so glad that Rick Bray, you know, to have to have King Solomon at your show when you're yeah. when you're putting a show together and you have builders like yourself, Rick Bray, Xavier Muriel, Warren Lane, mm-hmm. John Jessup, Brian Butera, guys that are known in the community for for building bikes like they can build and have yeah. built. And then you have uh, those dudes bring bikes, and then you have a King Solomon in the building. You know, like it's, you know, it's it's humbling as a as a promoter to do that. And I'm still learning all of all of that stuff. But the one thing I can tell you is, is that I feel I feel comfortable with the community of people that come to our show, and I feel comfortable with the way everybody homogenizes in there. And you know, we've gone to great lengths to make sure that the builders know that. We want them to be, we're thankful that they're there, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I love your show down there and it, it definitely, um, it shows that you care about us being there, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it, it was, uh, it was pretty crazy to build the, the trophy, you know, and have to pick, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I just wanted to, so many different things that happened last year, but that was like the tail end of it all. And I knew it was coming having, you know, one lat that the year before, and I knew I was going to have to build a trophy. The, the trophy I received was phenomenal. The one that Kyle built, yeah. it, it was a different kind of thing. It yeah, wasn't like building a bike for the show. Yeah, it, it was a different kind of responsibility. You have to pick someone. You know, there's pressure that you know you don't want to get any flack for picking someone that everyone would perceive as not worthy. And you know, yeah, but then you have King Solomon show up, and it's like, okay, that's. I don't think anyone was going to disagree with that. No one could disagree with that. One. Not that there wasn't amazing bikes in the room either. No, there was f- know, fantastic there was, bikes in that there room. There were some, some, some killers. Heavy, some killers. Yeah. Yeah. So, but. 
So, um, we're, we're already over an hour. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I appreciate you coming down and doing this with me again. Anytime. And, uh, we can follow you at alleyway customs with a K. Yep. Right. On Instagram. Um, Instagram, Facebook. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff on YouTube that had documented these past couple of years, um, that we're still, uh, you know, we, we've, we added last year some um, instructional video stuff that we coordinated with CycleSource on, um, and that stuff's going to be coming out. And uh, our website has a blog that uh, you can log into and follow the day-to-day stuff if you're not a Instagram Instagrammer. person and you're more of a <laughs> keyboarder. Right on. <laughs> you know? Um, but, yeah, all those places. Killer, man. Thank you. Thank you I so much. I appreciate it. All right. All right. <laughs>